You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Eater's Digest, a show about all things food and dining. I'm Amanda Clute, editor-in-chief of Eater. And my name is Daniel Janine. I am a producer at Eater. And Amanda, this week on the show, we are talking about the crazy state of the meat industry right now. Uh, there are plants shutting down left and right. People are freaking out about the supply chain. There are meat shelves in grocery stores that are going unstocked. And we wanted to know how severe is this issue? What is actually going on in the larger state of commodity beef and chicken and pork across the country? So we brought mm-hmm. on Matthew Wadiak, who was a founder of Blue Apron, the giant you know meal prep at home company and has moved on to starting a company called Cook's Venture, where he has a vertically integrated chicken company. So through his work at Blue Apron and now working with the grocery stores and with consumers at Cook's Venture, he has a, a really strong grasp of the the mess that is the American meat supply chain. Yes, it's, um, spoiler alert, depressing conversation, but, but really edifying. Yeah. Uh, there was also a really interesting piece on box.com that I think you should all check out called the meat we eat is a pandemic risk too. And it was interesting to ask him about the inherent risk that industrial agriculture poses to us vis-a-vis pandemics. Like these big factory farms are oftentimes sources of these Mm -hmm. diseases that end up spreading worldwide. It just so happens that the meat industry doesn't seem like it has anything to do with coronavirus but you know in the future these are absolute crazy hotbeds yeah just in response to you saying it's depressing one uh silver lining i found uh in this conversation is that a thing that i already cared about which is trying to decrease the power and this and the the foothold and this that the commodity beef plants have over America by like figuring out who the more local suppliers are, who is processing meat on a, you know, in a smaller scale. And it seems like not only is that probably the better thing anyway, but it is the best way to uh, prevent future shortages. Yeah, totally. So it kills two birds with one stone. So we're going to talk to Matt. And then afterwards, we are going to talk about the state of restaurants and maybe get to some fun stories. That's what we're here for, to provide a little bit of levity. So we are going to try to find some of that this week. Until then. First up. Here is Matt. Matt, (laughs) Matthew Wadiak of Cook's Venture. Could you uh, give us the context of the business? Where is it? How many people and and what you do? Yeah. (laughs) Our business is we have an 860 acre farm down in uh, Decatur, Arkansas, and that's a, a breeding facility where we breed heritage line birds only. And we have um, a bird that's over the course of the last 10 years um, developed and been selected for flavor, for health, for having a better immune system. For Then we have a farming network. We grow 
some of the birds that we produce on our farm and some of the birds on our partner farmers throughout about a 50 mile radius. A lot of poultry farmers participate in something called the tournament system where they get paid the best uh, farm, the best producing, mm-hmm. I should say, growers get paid the most and the least get paid the least. We don't do that. We just pay our folks about twice of the average of that as a flat rate. And because they already own their housing, they don't have a lease payment to a bank. So what we're doing is essentially recycling these farms and giving our farmers a living wage for maybe in some cases the first time in their careers, which is... And you guys process yourselves too, right? And then, yeah. So then we, we, we harvest the birds. We, we actually put them in small crates. They go on a truck and those individual crates go into our plant and they get individually loaded and process the birds in a small plant with about 200 employees in Jay, Oklahoma, which is about... 20 miles away from us, just over the border. As far as you're concerned right now, could you could you talk us through what is going on with the with the supply chain in the meat industry in terms of on the on the on the huge scale? Yeah, I mean, it, it is certainly really fragile. Actually, Temple Grandin wrote a really good piece um, that came out a few days ago where she was talking about how her quote was uh, big isn't necessarily bad, but big is very fragile. And I I think where we're seeing the cracks emerge in the macro supply chain on the meat side of things is, you know, uh, a few things. A, you have workers and plants, obviously, um, getting paid way too little and um, often traveling to work together and often staying in the same home together. And um, that's an issue, obviously, because outside of the plant, you have, you know, areas of the country where there's not a lot of coronavirus, but within those plant communities, there is a lot of coronavirus because of the social living conditions, plant labor, really yeah. big problems. And that's been widely reported. What we're not really hearing a lot about, but which is equally important, is this fact that you're, you know, hearing about animals being euthanized, you know, poultry and pigs especially. And one of the main issues with the fragility of the supply chain at scale is that over the course of the last 70 years, sort of like post-World War II, we've really bred animals to focus solely on feed conversion and not really on flavor and livability and quality of life. And that's led to Mm -hmm. um, breeds of pork and poultry animals specifically that dominate the entire food system that have very low immune systems that grow really quickly. And that if you had to, for example, shut a plant down for two weeks, those animals can't survive for that time period, you know, for those couple of weeks. Whereas if it was a healthier breed of livestock, you could close the plant, those animals would be just fine. You wouldn't have to euthanize them and you could crank the plant back up and slow down production a little bit. That's part of the fragility huh. of the modern system is in the breed and the genetics of the animals that we have sort of like. And that they just, they just can't live long enough. Like you just can't keep them alive for two more weeks. Yeah. In the case of chickens, they can't wow. because of, Modern chicken is processed at 38 days and they grow so quickly at like, you know, close to 50 days. They really, even at 38 days, they start dying of heart attacks and organ failure and they just get so big, they can't walk and move. And they just don't make it even from the feed line to the water line in a conventional chicken house. So that's really horrible. Could you explain like the, the role that the actual slaughterhouse and the processing plant, like the ones that would be owned by one of these huge companies, Tyson or whatever, what do they actually like, what is the actual trajectory of the meat that is going from the farm to eventually uh, one of these big supplier or the commodity suppliers? So that's a really good question. And I think that's sort of like a gap in like, you know, just general knowledge around how food works. 
the processing plant is really like the big company aggregator of an entire community of farmers. So for example, in the Smithfield case, you have 900 farms that are contracted into that plant. So if you're a poultry farmer or a hog farmer in America, it means that you're on contract to grow for a big company that is that owns that processing plant. And that infrastructure exists in the farming community because there's a plant there. And that's why there aren't a lot of small farmers doing this in small scale in America, because they have nowhere to process their animals. If you want to grow livestock, you have to, in most cases, go with a big plant, who, a big company who owns one of those kinds of plants. They process the meat, mm-hmm. then they put it into secondary packaging and ship it off to consumers. So what if I wanted to raise slightly, I mean, do a slightly better job raising animals? I wouldn't be in, like, I would still have to send it to that plant and therefore it's going to make its way to the commodity buyers and I'm not really incentivized to spend any extra effort. So if you want to grow like a few hundred chickens or even a couple thousand chickens, yeah. you could do it and you could find a really tiny processor for like $5 a chicken to process them for you. But by the time that gets to the end consumer, you're talking about like a $40 chicken with all of the variable costs associated with that. And that's sort of like the broken part of the supply chain that like folks aren't really totally identifying. So that's what we wanted to do. We wanted to grow a better chicken, but to do that, we mm-hmm. had to buy a genetics company and a processing plant just to make it cost effective for our customers to be able to do that. And like, you know, like early in my career, I was spoiled as a young cook because we were able to afford really great food and like high end restaurants and, you know, working in California and stuff. And like, if you're paying a hundred bucks for dinner, you can buy the best vegetables and the best meat from small farms. But if you're talking about having something that's accessible and affordable on a grocery shelf, or like in my previous role at uh, Blue Apron, when you're buying food for millions of people, that supply chain with that kind of level of quality and commitment to animal husbandry just doesn't exist in, the mer- in America because the roadblocks to processing are too great. When we've been reading about or hearing about the president wanting to force the plants to reopen, uh, in your point of view, is this a good thing? Is this a bad thing? Is keeping these animals going through the system beneficial or is the sacrifice on the worker side too great? What's the cost? You know, there's no cost that you can attribute to a human life. You know, it's like the humans, like the the lives of the people who work at these facilities need to be protected. And there's an executive order that was just reinforced again yesterday. No, two days ago. I'm sorry. And that went out to all the meat plants in America saying, you need to work with the USDA to keep the plants open. Because on the day that he initially, Trump initially announced the executive order to keep the plants open, Tyson, who advocated for that very heavily, shut down a plant that day after taking out a full page ad in the New York Times, Washington Post, and the Wall Street Journal. So, I mean, that's so paradoxical and doesn't really totally make sense to me why you would advocate it, create that order, and then shut a plant down on the same day. And obviously the reason is, you know, you need a stable workforce in the country. And more than anything, I feel like, you know, if you're a a big company out there right now, and you're buying like really cheap meat, and you're trying to bid one company against another for five cents to drive the price down, you're affecting these workers and these farmers more than anything. And I think that's what we have to remember is the people with with big wallets and buying power, especially the commercial food system, which has really driven down prices in in the last decade, we really have to think considerately, not, not even decade, the last 30 years, we have to be considerate about, okay, an extra few cents is going towards programs that are not just profit margin for a company. They're going towards worker sustainability. What are we seeing when we see like a whole 
field of onions that the farmer is, is saying that they're going to have to burn or yeah there's so many people i mean and then the common thing is you see there's so many food banks that need food and yet there are all these onions that are in the middle of the country and and yeah it's disturbing like a big part of the reason why they're doing that for one is it's they need food but they're like unit economics associated with picking them versus plowing them back in so a lot of the big like you think about like the small onion farmer as like the paradigm, but the reality is, is like these companies are controlled by huge agricultural corporations that are directing basically sharecroppers to plow their onions back in because it's too expensive to pick them. So that's primarily what we're seeing. And the effect of that is essentially they're volatizing carbon and they're leaving a bunch of barren soil. So they're making a a commercial commodity system even worse. The reason why they're doing that is that the demand, you know, in the industrial food system for commercial supply of those onions or spinach or whatever at the low level of being just like not organic, no claims whatsoever. That's going maybe to like one of the big food service companies in America. Um, there is no demand for that. Now grocery shoppers right. want to buy higher attribute foods in general, and those don't meet the qualifications. So what you'll see is just till it back in expensive to deal with. And one of the way, one of the uh, reasons we're seeing in, in, in more so in the meat, but, um, shelves that are not stocked and are and then they're they're figuring it out and starting to be able to stock them is they is those larger companies are figuring out how to skip their purveyors and go to grocery stores directly yeah i mean like so think about this nobody most people have never seen a what you call a combi bin of meat but the way that most meat is distributed in the country to these like big sort of like industrial manufacturing operations is a 2000 pound cardboard tote that sits on a pallet and takes up the whole pallet. So it's not like individually box. It's not even like a, like a 40 pound box of meat that somebody can lift and move. So just imagine a grocery store could never receive a 2000 pound box of meat would be impossible. Right. I think that's what's happening with the dairy too. We're seeing all the dairy getting poured out and it's because it's supposed to go in certain containers and now it needs to go in these gallon jugs for the grocery store and they're just not prepared for that. All of that has to go to get pasteurized and bottled and that system is just not set up for that. And the plants that are doing packaging right now are all at capacity. How is a company like yours, right? So you have, you're vertically integrated. You have everything under one roof. Uh, Why are you a safer bet during a time like this? Because like, if someone in your factory got sick, then you'd have to shut the whole thing down as well. Or are you claiming that having a lot of smaller operations is just being having a more diversified portfolio? So if one goes down, it doesn't shock the whole system. Well, all of that's tr- like both of those are true. But the first part to the, speak to the first part of it, like these plants that are shutting down aren't shutting down because one person's getting sick. They're shutting down because like 600 people are getting sick and there are people dying. Right. And they've known about it for weeks yeah. and weeks and weeks. They've been working with USDA to try to figure it out. So, I mean, there are cases where like people were going to work and bringing their own masks and supervisors were telling them to take their masks off. Yeah. Right. I saw people being tested testing positive or at least having an insanely high fever and the management team telling them to keep working. So, I mean, in our case, like if you have a smaller operation with a few hundred people, as opposed to a few thousand people for one, um, you know, if there's a group of folks who get sick, 
and look, nobody's like, you know, completely impervious to this virus. It could happen to anyone. It could happen to me. It could happen to anyone. So if people in our facility sure. get sick, you have to manage those people and you have to have backup plans. And it's a lot easier to have backup plans when you're dealing with like a dozen people or like, you know, two dozen people in a, a bad scenario and you tell them to go home and you are preventative and prophylactically like get ahead of the problem. And like we have, you know, nobody's, again, nobody's immune to this. We've had people who have had like a cousin or something who, you know, knew they were sick and we've just proactively told them to, to stay home for two weeks just to make sure they didn't have it. And I think that's what's kept it out of our facility today. And additionally, like a big thing that nobody really talks about is childcare. There are a lot of these plants where folks don't have childcare and they're going home and, you know, even though they're supposed to be on lockdown, they have to pick up their kids and they have to find solutions for that. And mm -hmm. one of the important things I think that, that we were able to do and some other folks have been able to do in smaller places is help folks out with their kids. You know, if you have to have a group of families where somebody stays home and you pay them to like watch one group where you're not intermixing with a lot of folks, that's really helpful. You know, it, it's following the rules of what we're supposed to be doing right now, but also in a small setting, that's a lot easier to manage because it might be like five or six people instead of like 500 people that you have to manage like all of a sudden. How does, how does that work? Are you, you guys are facilitating? Um, it's it's kind care? of informal, but like we've had some folks come to us and say, Hey, we have kids, like we don't know what to do right now. And we just said, okay, well, well somebody should stay home and we'll continue to pay you and you can watch the kids. And, you know, that way everybody feels safe and you can still have, you know, come to work. So um, I think that's like a really good solution. Like, like in small plants, you can develop social solutions that are reasonable and fair to the employees and, you know, also, you know, keep people fed. And I think all of that's like really important. So long term, um, what should consumers expect? Should they expect meat shortages at the grocery store or the, you know, takeout restaurants they're going to? Or is this going to be a temporary blip? You know, <laughs> I wish I had a crystal ball. Um I don't think people should freak out for one. Like I do think obviously the calories are out there in terms of food and, you know, people are smart and they figure things out. And like our, our business went from 50% food service going into like restaurants and caterers and stuff and 50% retail to like a hundred percent retail pretty much overnight because we have packaging equipment. We can do that, but not everyone can do that. But I, I do think that, you know, what we saw in the early days was, um, you know, a mass effort to try to get food onto the shelves. And I think we're still seeing that to me, like just from what I'm experiencing in the industry, the bubble of craziness seems to have popped a little bit and it's still a lot of demand, but it's definitely feels a little bit more stable. Um, that being said, like Wendy's announced yesterday, they're taking like hamburgers off their menu in a bunch of places. And I, yeah. I, I don't know if that's like a shortage consideration or a pricing consideration or their independent supply chain. It's not really clear, but you know, there might be like things that are short for a period of time and they come back, but I don't think anybody's going to, you know, from a supply chain, if you go hungry, I think the bigger problem is economically people are losing their jobs and they can't afford right. food. The restaurant workers, which encompass six times the number of employees in the airline industry still have not received a penny from the federal government. What are your grocery partners telling you? It's interesting. You know, they have been very nimble and they've been quick to adopt where they're getting shortages from their traditional retail channels. 
food service suppliers that have traditionally supplied like restaurants. And they've adopted, um, you know, I'd say more diverse practices in, in their procurement and have been open to servicing the community of buyers in a more thoughtful way. And that's been actually nice to see. Like we've seen um, on like the consumer end of things, more thoughtful buying and more consideration towards like, for example, our chicken is, is a lot higher attribute. It's pasture raised heirloom chicken, which is not something you see everywhere. And um, the velocity of that overall has been positive in that consumers are picking things that are, that are better quality. And I've heard that across supply chain, generally speaking. And it, it goes back also to 2008. There are some studies done about like, even during a recession, people tend to choose better quality foods and foods that are grown with more care. And I, it's sort of like is, um, you know, a little bit of a strange um, paradox that in one end, like people have less money to spend on groceries, but they're choosing better things that are healthier. And I think that bodes also to like, you know, the way that buying and share of wallet internationally takes place in Europe, for example, and in most countries, you see share of wallet for food as a much higher percentage than in the US where we're almost the lowest uh, country in the civilized world where we spend less money per capita on food than almost anyone else. Some people say that meat can be a source of a pandemic. It wasn't the source necessarily of this one, but if you have industrial agriculture, it is not the safest and pandemics can arise from these situations. Can you speak to that? Have you heard that? No, they can and they do and they have. And um, not specifically coronavirus, but we do think that coronavirus was transmitted from animals. And all of these diseases, MERS, SARS, um, H1N1, African swine fever virus, which is so far just, you know, a pork virus. But, you know, who knows in the future what could happen? Right. So uh, the biggest problem, again, going back to genetics, is that these breeds of animals, specifically pork and chickens, and, and honestly, chickens are the worst out of all of them, are so bred to only focus on feed conversion. There is a percent of an animal's developmental process, genetically speaking, that when it's, when it's growing and when it's eating high quality feed and when it's growing slowly, that puts energy into building a strong immune system. Just like a person with a compromised immune system, these animals are genetically bred with compromised immune systems. and it's because 100% of their energy is focused on converting feed into muscle that is extra cheap. The problem is, is when you have literally billions and billions and billions of livestock animals in concentrated feedlots in CAFO environments up against, you know, parts of the world in the U.S. or overseas that have wild animals, and a wild animal can come into, you know, infecting, you know, a chicken or a pig. And that virus can then spread through these animals, which are essentially, it's like sugar, water, and yeast. They're Petri dishes. Mm -hmm. They're literally Petri dishes and disease vectors. And they become endemic within those animal populations. And it only takes, it's literally a formula of a matter of time of so many billions of replications of a virus before it mutates and has the ability to jump to people. And we know this as a fact because it's happened over and over and over again, and it will happen again. 
like with certainty. Mm-hmm. And that's why breed is so important. When you have a breed of animal, a heritage line animal or a better bred animal that's slower growing, that has some ability to fight off infection, some animals might get sick, but then there, there are animals that are healthier that will be able to stop it and stop that in, in infection from spreading to other species. And that's why it's so important to consider livestock's overall well-being. You know, we're not just buying healthy chickens or pigs because they go outside and because they have a better quality of life. That's really, really, really important. But we're also buying them because they're healthier and they can live healthier lives. And they are, they're also creating food safety and food security globally. But also it's like, it's like lighting the fuse. If you were to infect a cow at the beginning of one of these lines where they're all packed in so densely, like what would it take a few hours or a few days for it to go shoot through? Like they're just. Yeah. The confined spaces are really are, are the, the biggest promoted of in pork and cattle hormone use and ractopamine, which are growth promotants. And the reason why cattle are given hormones, they can grow more quickly because they're put on these feedlots and fed um, corn and soy feed and cattle are ruminant animals. They're meant to digest cellular material in the form of grass and then ferment that rumen. And that's that fermentation creates a simple sugar that they turn into bone and muscle. So chickens are not allowed to be given hormones in the United States. But the CAFO environment of chickens creates a lot of sickness and mortality, which is why they're fed um, antibiotics subtherapeutically. So there's different reasons why different kinds of animals and different animal systems have problems, but they're all problematic in that you're right, this concentration creates the overuse of, of pharmaceuticals. And that goes to another very important point, which is human disease resistance. A lot of folks think that we just have unlimited antibiotics. We're very quickly running out of human antibiotics that we need to treat people for. And this could be like a blip in the map where we have these miracle cures for bacterial diseases in the form of antibiotics. Mm-hmm. But 70% of pharmaceutical antibiotics globally are administered to animals. <laughs> Only 30% is for human use and for other use. So when you talk about disease resistance, you can actually swab a pork chop a conventional pork chop, and you'll find antibiotic resistant bacteria on that piece of meat. And that's because these bacteria have become endemic within these livestock populations. And that's a problem because you can actually cross contaminate that meat in your kitchen, ingest it, and you can develop antibiotic resistant bacteria in your body. So next time you get an infection, that could become a problem for you. And that's what we're seeing in ERs across the country. Well, that's also exciting. <laughs> Jesus. It's, it's uh, French, but it's super fucking scary. So what can consumers do to be, to be better when they're at the grocery store? What should they be looking out for? What should they be doing? You, I, you know, choose it. Don't worry if it costs an extra 25 cents, choose something that's slower growing. Think about breed, buy for breed first. But how do we even know? If it says heritage or heirloom on it, it's probably a safer bet. Um, gap step four is, you know, one method of looking at things, buy foods that are at least certified humane. Um, ASPCA shop with your heart is a label that's a little bit better. These are all slightly imperfect, but all really good indicators of like things that are higher level and it at least moves the needle in that direction. So don't believe label claims like natural. That actually literally means nothing at all. Organic 
you know, in, in the terms of, in terms of meat, doesn't necessarily mean anything like an organic chicken, for example, could still be grown in a CAFO environment. And a lot of that feed is actually coming up as soy meal from Brazil, from deforested, you know, jungle from rainforest that was like burned down to grow soybeans. Not a lot of organic feed in America. So we're trying to convert American land to organic. So don't, that's not like the benchmark, but pasture raised, grass fed, gap for, certified humane shop with your heart. Those are the ones I would look for. Just cause it's a, a favorite thing. How are people cheating the grass fed label these days? Oh God. <laughs> I mean, since the beginning of time, like you, you can go to some places in different parts of the world where it's called grass, grass fed and you know, animals are fed pelletized corn silage with like coconut husks. And because Jesus. corn is a grass, you know, technically, <laughs> <laughs> Like if, if at all possible, if you can indicate what kind of breed your animals are and inquire where you're buying and ask your grocer, like I guarantee you all of the people who are listening to this, if 5 million people go out and ask their grocers, what breed of animal is this? Those buyers will all kick it up the chain and people will start inquiring about that. Breed is really everything when it comes to husbandry. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. And thank you for assuming that our audience was uh, 5 million people. <laughs> I was going to say the same thing. Uh, yeah, thank you for terrifying us more than we already are. Just hope. Yes. So Cook's Venture Chicken. Yes, Cook's Venture. Cook'sVenture.com. Cool. Well, thank you so much for okay. your work and for for telling us about all this stuff. Yeah, thank, thank you. And thanks for being so considerate and bringing this to your listeners. Course. Amanda, we'll be right back with uh, our overview of what else is going on in the food world right now. All right, Daniel, we are back to talk about the state of the restaurant industry and any kind of fun stories that have popped up over the last couple of weeks. First up, we should probably hit upon the Paycheck Protection Program. Uh, last week, we talked to a couple of restaurateurs who were a little afraid to spend it because of the guidelines. Um, yeah. And I don't know if there that much has changed since last week, except that we just keep hearing from more and more restaurateurs who feel the same way. Um, the requirement of the program is if you get the loan, it is turned into a grant if you spend 75% of it on your employees. But everyone is saying that they can't really do that if they can't really reopen to full capacity. Even if they were allowed to reopen next week at 50% capacity, and that was a safe thing to do, they wouldn't be able to hire back 75% of their employees. So the math just doesn't add up. And we're, we just keep getting more emails and um, notes from restaurateurs who just don't know what to do with this money if they are lucky enough to get the money. Anyone who is in a position not to dip in, it seems like is not dipping in because they just have no idea what the requirements are going to be. Like, Well, even if they are in a position where they have to dip in, they're not doing it because they don't want more debt. Right. So that's why you see some places just closing outright. Um, we've seen a bunch of permanent closures, actually. Uh, Auburn in Los Angeles is a notable one. They actually made um, GQ's best new restaurant list, which really? for some reason was published. <laughs> um, uh, and McCready's and Monero in Charleston, they're permanently closed. Daddio in New York, which is... Uh, a really important bar looks to be permanently closed. Uh, yeah. We've also seen some permanent pivots. Numbai in Oakland uh, is now fast casual. Fat Rice in Chicago is now like a grocer or meal kit 
place. You know, you just said for some reason the GQ best new restaurants list came out. I actually mm-hmm. I haven't thought about this at all. Uh, what's your take on these on these lists coming out? Because my initial gut feeling is like they were working on it before. What are you going to just bury it? I mean, and, right, and, right, right. and I've also also every restaurateur who I've seen on Instagram who's gotten some accolade. I mean, there are others that are about to come out. They've been happy. No one's been like, shit, yeah, yeah, I got yeah. this award. Yeah. But so it, it so what is your take better. on it? It's just, I think it makes the restaurant feel better. It makes the chef feel nice. Like, okay, we got this thing and the staff. Yeah. But as a reader, I'm just like, what? This feels so bizarre to be reading about a time that does not exist anymore. This is not the moment I'm living in where these restaurants are open and I want to read about how lovely it was to go there back in January. Right. Uh, and then to include a restaurant that is literally never coming back. It just, uh, it, it doesn't make sense. You like you, it's immediately out of date. Yeah. It's like when you see, I mean, I, I was reading something the other day. It was like, it's a great place to stand shoulder to shoulder with celebrities. Like shoulder to shoulder is just, I don't know how, when will we be able to use that yeah. wonderful literary device again. <laughs> if you were at GQ and this was you your mean call. if I were the editor-in-chief of a publication that runs a best new restaurant list? Hypothetically. Yeah. No, okay, but. I w- would, we canceled ours. But when had we already, I mean, we'd already started work. I mean, Hillary works all year on it, I guess. We'd already, I mean, ours was not that far along. Ours runs at the end of the year. Young Guns is something that we were about to announce and that did not happen. Um, there's just a lot of things where it just, we would put things on pause and the further along this goes, the less sense it makes to publish them. I can't speak to what it is to run a print publication, you know, like that, those wheels were already turning. Mm -hmm. I think it's just, um, unfortunate to have a restaurant on there that is definitely a hundred percent closed and not adding more context about that. That's a good point because and then I think it, there is a segue into talking about the national awards. Right. Because you have like this past week, James Beard announced their media and restaurant nominees. Uh, and Michelin had an update and World's 50 Best has an update. Uh, and what do you think there? James Beard. I mean, I think with James Beard, all the decisions were already made. So you yeah. might as well announce them all. Um, they are not announcing the chef winners until September. Yeah. And that I, that's confusing to me um, because it's, you know, recognizing work of 2019. I think you just have to get it over with. Yeah. Uh, I also think the James Beard Foundation has an opportunity right now that they are seizing on to become uh, a center for leadership and advocacy. And, you know, they've mostly been focused on awards over the past however many years. And at this moment, it feels so frivolous when there's an existential crisis like facing this industry and they have been focusing on, you know, political advocacy and raising a lot of money. And I think going forward, that should be their focus Mm -hmm. overall. Like, do we need awards right now? No. Like I I love the journalism awards because, you know, it makes, you know, it gets us riled up. It gives some validation to our team that works so hard. It's nice to give people awards, blah, blah, blah. But do we need all these things right now? No. Sure. You know, like, but, the, but don't you think journalism I mean, industry is trying to survive right now too? Like, yeah, words are great, but like we need to survive. 
But don't you think for James Beard as an institution to have the power and sway that I think you're assuming they could, don't you think a lot of that uh, is bolstered on them being like the credential hub of the industry? I don't think so. No? I think if you took award, the awards away, they could still, th- since they're already established as this connector and this name brand, yeah. if they were to pivot to become an advocacy group, which they've already done over the past like few years, they've become more and more focused on helping the industry versus just propping people up and celebrating like, oh, this is the best restaurant. Because if we all really think about it, we know the awards can and inherently are arbitrary. Mm-hmm. So why put so much energy into that kind of process when you could be right. raising funds, helping people, moving things forward? They're moving some money right now, though. Yeah, yeah. I think they're doing great work. I think this is how they should be focusing their energy and their time. And then eventually get back to doling out those shiny, shiny metals. <laughs> and, then, and maybe never do it again. I don't know. Or maybe have it be less of the focus. But can you imagine yeah. if they really became, I mean, if they became this center of integrity and then they were like, by the way, we're doing awards again, people would be even more like, whoa, I need one of those, you know? I don't, won't, wouldn't change anything. <laughs> people always just want an award. Yeah. I don't care personally about awards at all, um, which is a good thing about me. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Great. Uh, meanwhile, did you read about what Michelin and World's 50 Best are doing? Okay. So, I mean, basically both, both institutions are putting off their or awards until next year, right? Yeah. I think Michelin is still going to publish their digital guides somehow. That's the weird one where they say, well, our inspectors will be your first customers. We're here to support you. Oh, I like, saw I that. don't know, guys. Do you, do they need to be the first customers? Like, can't we just... It's survival mode right now. Maybe it's don't, also the first person that walks Michelin in the door. Reviews. The first person that walks in the door, everyone's going to be like, oh, that's, a, and that's an inspector. I, I know that person's <laughs> now we face know. now. I mean, listen, I, I like that we always take a, a bit of an opposing view on this, but I think Michelin especially is, is, it would be better if it wasn't such a huge factor in driving traffic to restaurants. But people, you know, as the guide suggests, leave their home country to go visit a, a restaurant in another country to get those stars. I mean, when things open up again, a lot of those restaurants that are obviously seem pretty irrelevant right now, the major tasting menus. Um, yeah, like will trophy dining exist in 2021? I don't, again, don't know if this is a good or bad thing, but I can't tell you what percentage of people I see who are answering like thing I really want to do. And it's like, get that tasting menu I've always wanted or whatever. And it's like when when things open up again. Wait, people like, are saying that? Yeah, or like go to my favorite restaurants or like... And it, like the thing I'm going to do as soon as this is over is like fly to Spain and eat for seven hours. At some, yeah. <laughs> I haven't seen that exactly. <laughs> but I mean, listen, I, it's, I mean, I guess I would it's say not a non impulse, right? Like, what do you want to do? You want to go and see the world. And for some people going to see the world is not really going to see the world. It's going to see the world by sitting in a seven hour tasting menu and thinking that's really experiencing culture. But like, is it fair to judge? As the Michelin inspector, a place on its first during day this moment. No, like during this moment where you're trying to figure out the safety protocols and you're at 50 percent capacity <laughs> yeah. and like the food chain is still messed up. But like and you're gonna be like, oh, I'm I'm taking away your third star, Jean George. <laughs> Absolutely uh, not. But I think I mean, listen, I think it's fair to say that Michelin as an institution has become a little more certainly not less transparent over the past few years, right? 
Mm-hmm. Um, I think that like, but what, like, what if they, I took, trust them to be a little bit fair. I just can't imagine them pulling a star. I mean, like, oops, your point is what's the point in the inspectors even being there? If it seems inconceivable that they would not, they would like knock restaurants down. Yeah. I just don't know if they have a purpose in this moment. Like maybe they don't. Can you imagine they released right a press release that'd be like, we're going to give all restaurants a pass if they're only slipping one star. But if they're if they've slipped two stars, we're going <laughs> to we're going to let the people know. I, <laughs> and then World's 50 Best, I think they have even less need to exist. I mean, they should not have. I don't think they needed to exist before. But now it's just like, what are you guys doing? <laughs> they What they're doing, by the way, is pivoting to focus on recovery. So they're doing a recovery summit instead of whatever ridiculousness they usually do. Yeah, I love summits. Good for that. Love a summit. Love a recovery summit. It speaks to this question of who is going to exist when this is all over. And if I look at a trophy dining place, I think the points against it are you're dependent on international travelers. Like if you look at 11 Madison Park, how many locals are actually going there? Especially because of the format where it's not just fancy, it's actually like a very long tasting menu. So if you're some you know, billionaire New Yorker, you're still not going to go there all the time because it's a lot of time. It's also often compared to a magic show and no one wants to see a magic show two nights in a row. But on the other hand, what they have going for them is just the insane connections. Like EMP is now one of those charity kitchens where they're cooking for people in need because they have relationships with Amex and Daniel Hum was able to just ask Amex for $250,000 and they were like, okay, sure. Right. Uh, so there's, I, oh, I I'm trying to figure out what is the sweet spot for who is going to be positioned to survive at the end of this. Like I have been thinking this whole time that the best, the restaurants who are best set up are the ones who are so vital to their communities and the ones who are able to adapt to what their communities need and are, you know, very much needed <clears throat> locally. Mm-hmm. But then on the other end, it's also just like who has... Who has the connections? Who has the access to capital? Who has the access to politicians? Right. So booming delivery business and a decent relationship with Amex. Yeah, or like the best neighborhood restaurant. Well, I mean, we've seen we've seen in New York the 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 ones that are it seems like are gonna hit the ground running when things reopen are ones who have established major delivery businesses and didn't have one before. So they've I think they're going in Maybe, but you don't you don't really know because the delivery is not getting them anywhere close to where they need to be. It's hard. It's hard to see from the outside who is going to be set up. So much of it is based on capital. Like, do you have access to capital? And what is your relationship with your landlord? Do you own your building? You're fucking fine. You know. I'm just saying, without knowing any of those things, I think it is okay, or not okay, but I think it is fair to be optimistic about restaurants that. Um, as you said, have huge community engagement and are still selling food right now. Because once things open up, it's not going to be as difficult to transition to restarting. If they can, if they can survive it. I think the bigger thing is just like, what is the relationship with the landlord? Sure. I mean, you know, like Gabe Stillman had this great, not great letter, but this letter that we published and that he sent to, I think maybe the city council speaker. Um, He's a restaurateur in New York about how he has all these different landlords and 
everything depends on that relationship and if the person is going to be a dick or not. And right. so many of them are just like, Hey, you, you owe me rent. You are in default. Like you are, I'm going to evict you. Yeah. What's going on? I actually don't know this. What's going on with the billionaires hiring chefs? Well, a lot of chefs are out of work right now and a lot of billionaires need chefs to cook for them. Mm -hmm. So some people are getting some new jobs. So like some of the coolest chefs in the world are now working for, yeah, at, at home private chefs. But that is, I mean, that's been a thing forever. Like there's, sure, we always heard of the summer house, Hampton summer house poaching uh, a chef who was like between jobs or whatever. I've actually met a chef who worked for a fancy family. I was randomly talking to him in a bar one time. It started, he was really closed off. I was like, oh, wait, so what did you, because he had just come from the summer. I was like, oh, so, because mm-hmm. he's like, I left my last job in uh, May, early May. I was like, oh, cool. Like where, and he's like, yeah, I've been working. I left my last job. And I was like, where'd you cook for the summer? And he goes, um, you know, gigs here and there. I was like, oh, really? And he goes, yeah. And I eventually, were, he's like, yeah, I was at a family. I was like, he was working for a family in the Hamptons. I was like, who was it? And he's like, you know, I, yeah, okay. <laughs> Yeah. So like there's this like, did he finally tell you? No, but I am assuming it was Andy Cohen. Okay, cool. (laughs) I put it together that it was Andy Cohen. Yeah. I mean, you got to do what you got to do. So yeah. Relatedly, (laughs) did you see the piece about the gardener quarantining with Martha Stewart? Oh, I've seen a little bit of it. What's going on (laughs) with our favorite? Martha Stewart is quarantining with her gardener, driver, and chef, I believe. And it sounds like a pretty fun time. Yeah. She refers to them as her detainees. Yes. The gardener says he's getting a lot of great work done because it's it's spring. And this is when you do a lot of your prep work for the year. Uh, They're on the 150-acre compound. Yeah. They, uh, you know, because he's there and doesn't have to commute to Bedford, New York, he gets to start work early gets to work late. She helps out. She is, she's in the weeds. Literally. Did you see the video of her ripping out on that new, uh, on, the on new, her tractor? Yeah. On the new tractor yesterday. Yeah. He filmed it. This gardener. He's Ugh. now her film crew. According to this piece in town and country, they eat their meals together. They play cards with her at night and yeah, he works side by side with her in the garden. I'm so glad it's going well for him. I'm so glad it's nice. It could so... I mean, could, I don't... You never know how celebrities are, but if I had to pick someone to quarantine with, she wouldn't be bottom of the list. No, 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 no. Oh, she's I, way I, up there. I would enjoy that. And I wonder if she would like share her face masks and stuff. There are certain celebrities who seem like the kind of person who if you were living in this house with them, you walk down the stairs at 7 p.m. and they're like, I have made you a martini. Like that's yeah, like that seems totally. like what she's like. Like, do you want a gummy or would you rather have me make you a martini? Right. Let's hang out. Let's FaceTime Snoop. Yeah. <laughs> Who would you not? Any Anyone that you, you're seeing living it up and you're like, man, I would not want to live in a house with that person for quarantine. I mean, I wouldn't want to live with almost anyone. Like most people, I don't want to be quarantined with them. Nice. Yeah. I'm very. Even with your own bedrooms? Even with like good distance? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is such a cynical thing, but. Everyone who's saying like, oh, it's so nice. I've had I've reconnected with so many old friends and I think it's really going to last us through once we get out of this. And it's like, no, it's not like you've all had more time to connect. Like when you have more time, you do more things. When you have less time, you do less things. What's superfluous now? Those relationships that you've refound during this time period. They're you are you are being very cynical. (laughs) (laughs) is that terrible i mean yeah i I don't i don't relate to those people either because i've you know i've just 
reverted back to my introvert tendencies. Mm. So I'm like, I'm not zooming after hours at all. Um, and I'm totally cool with that. Well, I think the Zoom cheers is dead. Like that was that was. Do you think people are done with the Zooms? It seems to me, or else I'm yeah. just not being invited anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, they didn't like your cynical take on things, and they stopped inviting you. I, I hope that people have more friends coming out of this, but I just think we have. I think we've all kind of independently figured out our slots for friendship, and there are however many, and maybe you're going to bump someone off and bring in someone, you know, your old mm-hmm. college buddy. Okay. Anyway, well, thank you guys. Uh, <laughs> thank you all so much for listening to Eater's Digest. Thank you to Matthew Wadiak at Cook's Venture for scaring the meat out of us. That's a weird way to say that. Um, yeah, but uh, check you out Cook's Venture. Again? No, it's fine. Do you want me to take okay. it again? No, no, no. Keep it. <laughs> um, check out Cook's Venture and uh, thanks Amanda for being here. Uh, please write us in emails digest at eater.com if you uh, you have anything you want to say or anything for us to talk about and uh that's all we have for you this week we will catch you next week thank you to do's, less time, and an infinite number of tools to keep track of. Sometimes doing business has never felt harder, but you don't need a miracle to hit your goals. You can just use HubSpot because their all-in-one customer platform can make growing your business infinitely easier. Imagine this, high-quality leads, fast-closing deals, wildly happy customers, and more benchmark-breaking quarters. It's not a miracle, it's HubSpot. Visit HubSpot.com to get started today.